When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Whoa. <laughs> Calvin, are you on the mar- are you on the, the, the drumstick squishies? They're squashies. Yeah, <laughs> just just got one. Just got one. I just text my mate going, um, just got one of these. I'm gonna see what um it's a slush. Drumstick Ooh. squashy slush. Oh my god. Put it in the freezer. But first time I've had it, so it's a review, so This is great. This is a live review of the drumstick slushy. I mean I don't know how you're supposed to get it out. <laughs> First problem. I, I stayed at an Airbnb recently that had drumstick squashy air freshener. Oh my god, that sounds. It a bit was too as sweet. bad as it sounded. Yeah. The thing is, when they do stuff like that, though, because this is it: drumstick squashy slush and then drumstick squashy air freshener. The squashy is the texture of the sweet. They just mean drumstick. <laughs> it's <just> drumstick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like why is it now being rebranded as squashy? Who knows. Uh, have you managed great, to get? Have you? Okay, not great. Would not buy again. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. We have a lift off. Welcome back to Sweet Reviews Unfiltered with me, James Gray of iNews.gdk, the iNewspaper. Calvin Beton is our resident sugar expert and George Belshaw is our lean, mean, vegan machine. Are you still vegan, George? Yeah, yeah. All right, okay, that's quite impressive. Five and a half years. Wow. Uh, And with no dalliances? No, I mean, there's been things people have accidentally fed me sort of thing, but no, uh, no slipping of my own. All right. Very impressive. Um, we are all in various different rainy bits of the country because that is all the UK is at the moment. It's rain, rain, rain. It ruined a lot of the tennis. It's ruining a lot of the cricket. And before we came on, Calvin was saying what an absurd sport cricket is uh, for the fact that the rain is just going to mean that they don't get a match. Imagine if they did that with the Wimbledon final. Well, it, it kind of reminded me of some research I was doing earlier today for a thing I'm writing about a few quite old tennis players. And um, specifically, I think it's Dorothea Douglas, who won Wimbledon one year by winning the all-comers final. So it used to be that Wimbledon was the champion from last year against the winner of the all-comers tournament. So if you basically, if you won the tournament, you got a buy into the final and then you, everyone else had to play a normal tournament. And that year, the champion, I forget who it was, didn't defend the title and therefore she... Uh, she, so she just won by winning the All-Commons final. She she got a walkover in the Wimbledon final, effectively. So, um, yeah. I, what I'm learning, because I'm having to write this thing, which potentially is going to be a book, uh, about the immortals of British tennis. And obviously there was quite a big fallow period in British tennis, which I'm having to, you know, skirt over. And so go into some of the pre-war years. And some of the stories about pre-war tennis are just absolutely hilarious. Like, like for example... 
there, there are these brothers, the Renshaw brothers, and Cal- even Calvin's probably not old enough to remember them, given they were born in 1830, <laughs> uh, or 1860, I should say. But I didn't realise that tennis in the mid-19th century was basically a baseline sport. Like, no one had really bothered to come to the net. And then they basically pioneered serve and volley, and they won, I think, eight singles titles between them and about nine doubles titles as brothers. Um, William Renshaw actually holds the all-time record for the most number of Wimbledon titles in a row, uh, which I think is seven. Uh, Yeah, so basically the the Federer slash Sampras uh, record is an open-era record because Renshaw has the original one. There you go. I mean, also, all those like records are kind of irrelevant because only about eight people played tennis to a serious level at that time. Have you, It's not quite that far back, but have you ever watched like um, YouTube videos of like Fred Perry playing tennis? It's no. It's worth it. It's worth a go. Yeah, there's stuff on YouTube. It, he's terrible. I don't know, like, <laughs> the standard then was really bad. <laughs> it's it's quite comical to watch. Um, I mean, presumably, like. And again, Calvin's our correspondent for the past, so maybe he's better placed. But presumably, courts then were really bad. Balls, I don't really know what a pre-war tennis ball looks like, but I imagine it wasn't very reliable. You probably couldn't put many revs on it, so you pretty much had to just knock it around, Calvin. Uh, Yeah, I don't know what one looks like. I don't really know what anything looks like beyond the white balls that they used to play with up until about 1982. What were they like? Like They're normal tennis tennis balls now, but they were just white. Instead yeah. of green, instead of yellow. But I guess it's the racket. The racket. The racket. Yeah. Change. You used to still be able to buy those white ones until about twenty years ago. Mm. Um, I don't know why that. You know, maybe it's colour for TV or something. It would be quite cool to play with a tournament with a white ball. I guess. I mean, I think it would be quite. Yeah, the, the balls are definitely something we could look at. I mean, I know Wimbledon balls are rubbish anyway because the slazengers are crap, but. Um, I, th- I would be quite intrigued. They do these thing in golf called hickory tournaments, where they all play with like wooden shafted clubs, you know, from from a hundred years ago. I would be quite keen to watch a tennis tournament where they all, you know, pros use wooden rackets and old balls and long trousers and the rest of it, like, and not just like knocking it around for a YouTube novelty, like actually trying to win. I think it'd be pretty fascinating to see like who the more adaptable players are. I guess you, it's the guys with really good hand skills who benefit, right? Um, yeah. I just wonder, like, even I mean, he's probably like a bit old now, but I reckon if you stuck, if you went with wooden rackets, and up until about ten years ago, I would still reckon I would still fancy McEnroe to beat anybody. Yeah, I knew you were gonna say that as well. I, I, mean, I actually would... reckon he would just the way that he played, and like he's probably just lost too much athleticism. I think he's like in his sixties now. Mm. But um, but like up until being about fifty, I reckon he probably would have still taken anybody just because they wouldn't be used to it, and I think he'd probably adapt pretty quick. I mean, he still looks in reasonable nick. Like I saw him, I'm trying to remember the last time I saw him. Well, I saw him at Wimbledon, and it, like he looks in reasonable shape, mm. and I think he still he still plays golf regularly. I think, and you know, he still still gets around. But yeah, maybe a little, little bit of that sideways. He's got I don't know whether hits. um. Nike actually just released a pair of his old shoes from the 80s called mm. the Mac Attacks. Mm. And he actually appeared in a promotional advert for it with Travis Scott, which wow. was a bizarre sort of coming together. Um, <laughs> because basically what happened was Nike were going to release these shoes because they do a lot of re-releases of like old 1980s shoes. Both Nike and Adidas have been doing that. And like, if, I mean, I was going to get a pair few people I know because they're quite a sort of iconic tennis shoe mm. and then 
randomly like a week before they were released travis scott who, I, who i'm not aware of other than he is married to one of the kardashians i think right and he does have some design with nike or something um and travis scott was seen wearing a pair of these mac attack shoes about a month before they became on sale and then that basically wrote off any chance of anyone getting any because they were then like rocking horse shit mm-hmm. um so he's yeah ma- he's so- married to kylie jenner i'm reliably informed right i don't even know which one that is um, that is a Kardashian, right? That's 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 a thing. As far as I'm aware. Yeah. Again, this is not the Kardashian. It's not a strong so... suit. This one. No, I don't think. no reality TV. Probably, if you were going to like, you know, play blood ball with our specialist subjects, I think reality TV probably the worst possible choice. Um, anyway, uh, moving on. Let's talk about some actual tennis. What we're going to do this week is because I feel like we didn't take a great helicopter view of Wimbledon last week. We were very much talking about the final and what had happened over the weekend. So we're going to maybe just, after a week of um, kind of recollection and um, reconciliation, a bit of rest even, lots of other words begin with R, we're going to sit down and uh, think exactly about what went on over the tournament, what our best moments were, what our worst moments were. Um, and George has thrown together, as he always does so kindly, his list of... Uh, the things we should be talking about. So we're going to start off, we'll do four different sections. We'll do big, biggest disappointment, biggest surprise, best moment and worst moment of the tournament. I, I suppose we should start with best, biggest disappointment because this is Tennis Unfiltered and I feel like that's our real wheelhouse is uh, disappointment. Uh, certainly something that I specialise in in my life. Um, so we're going to split by ATP and WTA as well. Uh, George, since this was your uh, pitch, I'm going to ask you to start on the ATP side, on the men's side, with the biggest disappointment. I'm, I'm probably going to feel a bit harsh going for this, but I was I was disappointed for Murray. I, I thought that was a real opportunity for him to not only beat a top player at a slam, but also to then go and have a, a pretty good run. Um, so while, you know... the there's obviously the caveat that he's come back and is playing at a good level and it's great he can push City past that far. I, I thought he should have won that match and I think, you know, given the context of his attempts in the Grand Slams over the last few years, he, he couldn't have asked for a better draw than that, really. Um, so I, I think that was really quite disappointing that he didn't go over the line in that match. Mm. Uh, Calvin, what have you got for your biggest disappointment in the men's draw if you've got a specific person? I've picked multiple people, I apologise in advance. Uh, the biggest disappointment for me was um, Luke Johnson and Julian Cash losing first round. <laughs> <laughs> Seems quite reasonable. <laughs> that, yeah. That's definitely the biggest disappointment. That's fair. But if you're looking for a singles situation, um, I would say I'd agree with Judge. I'd say it's probably Murray. Um, I think. So, so as other I, than that, I had to pull a disappointment out, isn't it? Taylor Fritz probably another one. That wouldn't say. I mean. Well, I think like for a top ten player to be con- who could play well on grass, he's he's been really disappointing at the slams recently. And I did name my fantasy team after him, and he did terribly. So. <laughs> um, I mean, mine is kind of Fritz adjacent, which is just basically the whole next gen, like that whole generation of like guys between sort of twenty four and twenty six: Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Fritz, like just. You know, individual performances, you know, you know, we got to the semi-finals or got to the quarter-finals and, oh, we had a tough draw. But, like, just 
I know we're not talking about it because Carlos Alcaraz has leapfrogged them all and gone and actually won the damn thing. But the reality is that there's still this group of players who are really talented, but for whom it appears to be just enough to make, like, you know, $10 million a year or $8 million a year, win a Masters title or two, get to the semis of Wimbledon or the US Open and go, yeah, you know, I gave this my best shot and I'm going to keep trying to win this slam and I'm going to keep chasing this dream, but... You know, Novak and Carlos are just playing at a different level. And it's like, well, like, yeah, they're obviously both very good, but you can play at that level. Like, you can get to that level. It just, I don't know. I, I The more I kind of think and talk about tennis, I just think that there is a certain mindset that is so alien to some people that you, you have to have to go and be one of these, like, all-time greats. And, and I don't know whether they have it. It's kind of the um, it's the focus on the process generation, mm. where mm. you you know that because they always roll out a sort of variation of that, and I mean that focus on the process thing kind of came in about ten years ago, and now it seems like every player who never wins just goes, you know, I'm just going to focus on the process, and it's not really what he's meant to be there for yeah. in the first place. He's supposed to actually win tennis matches as well, and mm. if you don't if you're not winning, then who gives a shit about the process? It's, it's like it's like people like who sort of seem to shrug off defeat really easily, because yeah. we often as journalists, you know, end up talking to players pretty soon. Off some players will want to just get it out of the way, so you can often talk to them like ten or fifteen minutes after they've lost a really big match, and the ones who are just like, yeah, you know, like this happens. I'm like, no, like this should hurt. Like, and and you know, inversely, when a player comes in and says. Yeah, correct. I mean, this is going to take me a week. Like, this will sting. I'm like, yeah, that's that's a, that's a Lee attitude. Like, and and you know, I I also respect the ones who can come in and say this really hurts. I'm really upset, but I'm also going to try and talk about it. You know, because that gives you something to write about. And you know, Murray's kind of a really good example of that of someone who takes defeat in the short term incredibly badly. Um, I think you should take it quite badly. Um, you know, there are, there's obviously a line, but show me a, a good loser and I'll show you a loser. I don't think that's far off the mark. You have to say the whole big four are all pretty bad <laughs> bad losers from up I mean, like, they're good losers in the sense of, you know, quite quite gracious on court and normally congratulate their opponent. There's not, not been too many off times where they've been like, oh, they didn't deserve to win, etc. But, you know, Novak is always straight in and a grumpy goose whenever he loses a mm. <laughs> kind of big match. Federer was similar. Nadal just looks like his world is over quite often. <laughs> a bit more kind of lamenting rather than angry. But... I think with those guys, the guys who've won so much and so big, they they don't see the match beforehand as we see it, where you'll think, you know, say if Nadal's gonna play Djokovic, they won't see it, oh, you know, this is a fifty fifty match or or any match. They see it as they can't comprehend the idea that they won't win. So it's more a shock to the system when it's not necessarily so much that they're bad losers. It's more just that they're shocked when it doesn't happen because they've, they've absolutely convinced themselves that they are going to win. Mm. And I think that's the situation with any of Murray, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. Mm. That it's um, Whereas I think maybe that generation below them and the players ranked below them, they kind of you know think maybe I'm not going to win this. Um, yeah, and like it's the one that kind of stuck out to me is Medvedev getting duffed up three, three, and three, 
And I think the first thing he said in his preference was, oh, I don't think I played that badly. It's like, well, I mean, you probably did. <laughs> like, and I, as we we all thought that he did. I mean, you were both, I think, harsher on him than I was. But, you know, you you have to consider that there's a chance when you lose 3-3-3 three, three, and three in the Grand Slam semi-final that you didn't play well. Yeah. Well, we're on bad losers as well. Serena, terrible. I mean, yeah. she was always in a really bad mood. And I, as you say, I think that's a really good sign that all of them are a bit bit kind of like that there are too many people where like i think you know i'm not gonna i'm not picking on songa but i just remember like one of the first <laughs> conferences i did with him he was just i was like oh are you kind of upset about losing he's like i lose every week <laughs> so, cool i mean that, that is wrong. the thing that that is the thing though for the vast majority of tennis players every week they end up losing hmm. so it's something that they get used to and there's only basically been three players who don't three and four for a period of time including murray that don't lose most weeks mm. and you know and that's that's something that they do tend to get used to and i think it's something that this is why i can't see well, not that i can't see it, i'm certain of it that the that generation the generation below alcaraz are not going to win many slams they just don't have the mentality in them they, they have too much scar tissue of having lost too much and you don't get to the age that they do. Like, for example, Stefano Tsitsipas is not going to win eight, nine, ten slams. He might somewhere nudge one out if if everyone else gets knocked out. And the same goes for Zverev. The same goes for Kasper Ruud. I think, unfortunately, the same probably goes for Felix or Ger Aliassim now. Mm. The, that, that what we thought, you know, and when when they first came came through and broke into the top 20... We saw all of those guys as being multiple slam winners, but you don't have that scar tissue of having lost for so often, um, and and getting you know, and, and then suddenly start winning. It, it doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah, you're right. Uh, let's move on to the biggest disappointment in the uh, women's side of things. Uh, I mean, personally that we didn't get the final we wanted on really any level was a big disappointment for me. Um, yes, Ons Jabour would have been a great winner and probably if she had won it, that would have saved it and we would have forgotten the fact that she played in a you know, final against somebody we didn't know a huge amount about and that certainly the great British public knew almost nothing about. Um, nearly, well, over 4 million people still watched it, which I suppose shows the pull of Wimbledon and that it doesn't necessarily matter who's in the the final but uh yeah i was pretty pretty annoyed that we didn't get you know a more consistent you know a more a winner that uh, because it just means a whole new story we have to tell and while sport needs new stories it also needs a bit of familiarity and i'm afraid that marketa wondershova wasn't familiar before and that she's not familiar still so that that i guess that's my it's not a new complaint about the wca but um calvin i suspect you have something similar um yeah, again, I'd probably say the same. Um, yeah, not much to add on it other than that. Well, I'm going to go for a different one, and it's a broken record time for us again, but Goff, just yeah. really disappointing, losing first round to Kenin. Okay, Kenin's in a bit better form, but Goff has gone so far backwards and just not kicked on at all. Um, that's just a general kind of disappointment and bugbear because she should be a leading star of the women's game and it's just not happening at the moment yeah yeah and it's hard to know where i mean i think we all probably agree what has to happen which is 
get some different voices in her head and you know she's she's had the same coaches for a while and i know at least one of them that we don't particularly rate but um yeah we'll see how that goes involved? uh well i mean he still turns up <laughs> whether he's involved is neither here nor there but patrick Muratoglu is still in her box at every opportunity and or her dad like her dad still wears all his gear so um yeah yeah exactly he, I, know. I think i think tongue-in-cheek but in the uh, lister review survey you put together james uh the most common name i saw for people wanting to get someone on the show was patrick Muratoglu. i, I think because they wanted to they're just <laughs> desperate to hear someone challenge him and just like what what on earth are you going to say when someone actually tries to have a go at him I, I really don't know what that might be but i did actually offer the chance to go on holiday with patrick Muratoglu this week um to go to Greece for a couple of days. But the idea of going to 45 degree Greece and getting a tennis lesson off, off Patrick Ritoglu, while interesting, um, didn't fill me with joy. And instead, I'm going to walk across England in the rain. So uh, I think I made the right choice, quite frankly. Uh, let, let's try and pick up our positivity, shall we? The biggest surprise, the biggest breakthrough uh, from the tournament. Calvin, you've got to go first here, I think, uh, on the men's side. Your biggest surprise performance? Oh, it's Chris Eubanks, isn't it? That's pretty straightforward. I mean, the, the yeah. counterpoint, he did win the title in Mallorca the week before Wimbledon, so you could argue like he had some, you know, a bit of pedigree coming in, but yeah, I but I still it... think that's that's you know, even including that, I still think it's a big breakthrough. I don't think you know, after he won Mallorca, I don't think anyone was going to tell you what, don't sleep on Chris Eubanks, mm. you know, and, and even if they were, you know, I think it's still a still a big breakthrough. Um, do, do you it's... think when you look at his game? Because it, it looks to the layman a little one-dimensional, like and and like it might quite quickly fall apart because he is, you know, he plays pretty low percentage tennis. He's obviously got the massive serve, but on slower surfaces, doesn't have that advantage. I mean, his serve will still be massive on on hard courts. Um, I think he'll struggle on the clay just because tall people tend to. Yeah, because their movement is is a problem. Um, but. I think he'll just end up being one of those players who can always cause an upset. Um, you know, he's, he's somebody you, you're not going to want to get. If he maintains the level he's playing at and he maintains his confidence, he's one of those who, if you're, a, you know, a, a, a sort of a 16 to 8 seed, you're probably not going to want to face him. Um, because if he, if he hits some form, he will probably be dangerous. George, that is the right answer, Christopher Eubanks. Have you got an alternative <laughs> answer? Um, I would bit yeah. I, I I will say my. I, I probably have a Dimitrov. Actually, I thought he kind of did quite well out of nowhere. I don't think he's been playing well at all this year, and he had a really good win against Tiafa. Mm. Um, got to the fourth round it's not amazing i mean eubanks is the right answer so i am I'm clutching at the straws here um but I you could also claim bottom. roman safiulin right yeah well they didn't really beat anyone particularly like notable i think right? that's kind of it like he beat shavavalov didn't he but he's not been in great form i guess like Shavala's the other one maybe yeah. maybe like public as well actually being relatively consistent and <laughs> yeah pushing rublev all the way like he didn't throw a match away stupidly really Threw a point away. The, the odd <laughs> yeah. one. But, yeah. <laughs> it felt like a, quite a sort of, not predictable men's tournament, but like there weren't many shocks. Like, like there were very, like, you know, 
Chris Eubanks got to the quarters, but he did win the title in Mallorca. Like, Bublik did well, but had also won a title before. Like, Dimitrov has a game for... You know, there was no one where you were like, oh my god, this guy's like a clay specialist, and all of a sudden he's like in the quarterfinals. The only caveat to that, and my like left field biggest surprise, was Nicholas Jarry posing such problems for Carlos Alcaraz in the third round and taking a set off him. Um, I think that someone we should always... have had two. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that I mean, as much as we do like upsets and that kind of thing, I think that what what this Wimbledon made me realise is that they're also the worst thing to happen to tournaments a lot of the time <laughs> because basically what saved this whole tournament was the fi- the men's final. Yeah. Because apart from the men's final, it was pretty crap. <laughs> let's be honest. But the men's final was great. It was it was a really great match, and it was a great spectacle. And people were interested in it, but and there was that sort of you could feel it building as well. I mean, I had people messaging me as it got closer and closer. It just felt like it was going to a Djokovic Alcaraz final. Yeah, and and it sort of built nicely in that they both had a couple of little bits of minor struggle and came through it, and it just went that way. But you know, it, it just imagine that compared to like the other year where. We had Djokovic duffing up Kevin Anderson yeah. in the final. And that's just what you don't want, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I guess the absolute disaster for tournaments where you get like a big upset win and then that person immediately loses. Whereas if you have them like, you know, for example, Raducanu is the extreme. If you have someone who makes like a surprise run and wins three or four matches after the big shock, then it's like, oh, this is a story we can tell. And, you know, that was what was great about Lena Svitolina was that she didn't just win one quite emotional match against Venus, and then she didn't just win against Victoria Azarenka in an even more emotional match. She then went and beat Shrontek as well, and it's like, it allows you to build a storyline. And it is the great problem with tennis, is that it's knockout. And I've always been very pro more tournaments with a round-robin format. I know it reduces the size of the player field, which is a problem for the um, the kind of uh, the ecosystem as a whole, but that allows you to have a bit better shot at, at going and, and creating a bit more of a storyline. I mean, even like the Hotman Cup this week, um, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later on because there are also some problematic things with it, but the Hotman Cup advertised who was playing who like six weeks in advance or like three months maybe in advance. They were like, on Thursday, the 20th of July, Carlos Alcaraz is going to be playing, I can't remember who it is now, Dominic Stricker or something and it's like oh so you can buy a ticket for an event where you know who's going to be playing and that's a real problem for tennis is that because you can't do that the event has to be good like Wimbledon people don't really care who they like obviously some people care but for the most part they're there because they like Wimbledon and they like being in an English garden and pims and strawberries and cream and the rest of it um and that that is a problem and and yeah I I'm not really sure what point I'm trying to make, Calvin. Other than yes, you're right, but um, it's yeah. the same as the FA Cup, isn't it? You know, you get th- you get um, big big shocks in the FA Cup, hmm. and then you end up with Manchester City against Bradford. Yeah, in the final. <laughs> and everyone thinks, yeah, maybe it wasn't great that Bradford beat Liverpool in the yeah. quarterfinal or something like that. And you know that that's the problem, isn't it? At least with the FA Cup, due to the the fun of the draw that I keep pushing, uh, you get guaranteed, well, generally guaranteed big matches at some point in the tournament. Whereas when like Federer or Djokovic 
or Nadal, they lose early, they're not going to have played anyone interesting, really. Um, I mean, I guess another problem with it is that at the minute with the men, well, men's and women's game, is that there, there just aren't enough stars around in that you've basically got predictable results on massive shocks. You don't have that situation where when you've got, I guess, you know, when, when you used to have, you know, the, the, the real golden era, I think, of the one we just had when you had like the big four, you had Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, Murray, and then you had Ravrinka in there and Del Potro in there. So you had kind of like six guys and then you had a couple more. You had guys like, well, Nishikori Nishik- well, Nishik- mm. was in there, and maybe like, um, who was I just thinking of? Chilich occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Chilich a bit. And then you had like, you know, you had 10 guys who, you, you, you know, you suddenly got 10 there who you think, actually, you know, it's not a massive shot. And, you know, even say, you know, Djokovic, say he'd been a little bit rusty, and then he's got to go and play Stan or Del Potro in the quarters. Then you're sort of thinking, right. And then if they win, it's still fine because those yeah. are guys who are, who are going to cause trouble to anybody. Whereas now it's kind of like, you know, like, I mean, this is the problem. You've got these guys who are in the top 10, like Rublev, Sitsipas, Hercatch, guys like that, who are just not threatening to any of the guys in the top top three. I mean, as you said it a couple of times, but Djokovic was laughably comfortable playing. He was literally laughing at Rublev. Like, yeah. because it, it was like one set, all three, all, and it was a tense moment, and Djokovic was like, I'm not losing this. Uh, and, and that just keeps happening, I think, where these big guys get into these matches. And Alcaraz is the first one, like I said earlier, top of the show. Alcaraz is the first one who's actually made the leap to join that elite and actually, I think, put the put the, put the the wind up them, I would suggest. Um, the other one I, I just wanted to point out, biggest surprise is Berrettini just because we genuinely thought he might not even make the start line. Like we were talking about him pulling out so Murray could get seeded and it didn't happen and he got to the fourth round like and you know took a set off the champion. So I think some players on the way. Yeah, and he you know he'd be duffed up Zverev pretty comfortably and you know Dumanor, who'd he, played okay. Exactly, a good grass player. He he played like we know Berrettini can play, so that's that's maybe my my surprise of the tournament. Um the WTA biggest surprise I, I'll carry on Vondrasova is the correct answer. Um, <laughs> four wins ever on grass, I think, before this tournament. She won. You know, she won a tournament I was at. She won a challenger in Shrewsbury back in November last year, which is the last tournament she won on British soil. Um, I'm not sure there were any other massive, like, positive surprises, breakthrough surprises. I don't know if anyone can suggest any, George. I think Svitolina was still quite a surprise. Like. Mm-hmm. You know, she had been to the quarterfinals, but to beat Sviante was a surprise. Um, Certainly to you, because you didn't pick her in fantasy. Well, I I should have done. Um, (laughs) And then I suppose it was a surprise she then bloody capped the bed and lost to Vondrasova. Yeah. So a surprise within a surprise. (laughs) She got to where (laughs) she should have been and then all went wrong. Yeah. Calvin, have you got any any other submissions for the WGA surprise of the year category? Um, no, I don't think so. I'd say it was probably... I mean, like you say, it's Bondrasova, but also Svitolina, I think. Mm. don't think anybody saw that happening. But then again, again, I don't want to like feel like I'm having a go, but like, what is a surprise on the WTA tour? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, it, And, you know, that that is a merit in some ways, but, yeah, as we've just discussed, there is a happy medium to be struck, I would suggest, George. 
it was probably kind of surprising Jabor beat Rybakina and Sabalenka back to back. Yeah. Did it so well. I wonder how many people have beaten Rybakina and Sabalenka. I mean, I suspect in the same tournament, no one's done it since, like, since they sort of both became the top two of three players in the world. Uh, I'm just trying to think. Has Shvontek done it anywhere? Uh, I'm not convinced that she has. But, um, yeah, I can't I can't think of one off the top of my head. I mean, it's quite quite limited opportunity to do it, I suppose, because you'll get all three of them in the same room, which isn't easy either. But, um, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, it's a good point, George. Well done. I might give you credit for very much, but you can have that one. Right, time for your best moment from uh, Wimbledon. Uh, George, do you want to kick us off your best moment? I mean, it has to be Alcaraz, isn't it? That, that was, I think that was such an important moment for, for men's tennis. It was in danger of fading into a bit of Novak is just going to keep winning forever and people are going to get kind of bored with that domination and to have like such a good final that really kind of captivated the public. Um, and he seems like quite a nice kid from afar. Um, I thought that was just really heartwarming moments. So, so do you literally just mean match point, George? And start of a good rivalry. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I thought, his, to be fair, I thought his kind of drop shot and lob in that final game under that pressure was pretty cool. Like mm. that was probably up there. For someone. I haven't seen someone do that to Novak for a long time. Yeah. That was pretty impressive. Calvin, are you going to struggle to disagree with that? Um, I I have a left field, but it's actually not really to do with tennis. Great. Uh, what they, uh, so um, a backstory here. So the first single I ever bought was <laughs> Killer by Adamski in, I think, 1991. And I played it to death. And it's still one of my favorite ever songs. For the record, uh, uh, 1991 was the year I was born. So just, just for a bit of context. <laughs> and uh, I st- it might be might be one of the... Well, it probably definitely is one of the top 10 songs that I've listened to the most in my lifetime. Um, and anyway, I was sat... It was one mid-afternoon, late afternoon. I was sat having some strawberries and cream in the upstairs restaurant at Wimbledon. And Seal walked in, who sang the song. Wow. And I was, and I don't get very, I never get starstruck, but I was like, oh, wow, it's Seal. And he was just <laughs> sat there on his own, right, just reading a paper. And I'm not, I'm not really one for selfies or anything like that, um, or posting on social media. And I, I spent a good 10 minutes thinking to myself, like, I don't normally do this, but if there's anybody who's worthy of it, shall I go and ask Seal for a picture? And I didn't. Uh... And, then, and then the next day he was there again and I spent another 10 minutes going like do I? nah he's like sat there he's come to watch some tennis he doesn't want dickheads like me going asking him for a picture but yeah what, what are you saying Kevin, you bottled it yeah. I don't bottled it I just thought, thought I don't you know I don't I, I have a bit you know I don't think they want bothering with stuff like that and you know, but yeah, it's a big moment for me that Seal was there. Seal but was I think I, I, I'm kind of with you, George. Like, uh, Calvin, like we, we all of us kind of end up rubbing shoulders with people like that, and it's always a bit. But I think if you go up to someone and say, "Listen, you sang on the first record I ever bought. Like, I played it to death, and you're an absolute hero of mine." I think, I think you'd be hard pressed yeah. to find someone who doesn't go, "Oh, mate, that's cool." Like, you know, because yeah, that's why yeah, they and... do it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, but 
I mean, it's a, it's a weird one, though, because he was just... The, what was strange was that one of the days I was there also was that John Bon Jovi was there. Yeah. And there was this, like... And, and also a different day, David Beckham was there, and also Jessica Alba was there one of the days. He was nowhere near as famous as the other two, but... Um, but John Bon Jovi was there, and David Beckham was there, and there was this hurrah in there. There was this buzz of, like, you know, everyone going around going, oh, John Bon Jovi's up there. And then he was there, you know, and he's like, you know, he has this rock star thing, and Beckham was there... And Seal, it's just there, like, hardly anyone clocked. I had to say to about three people, that's Seal there. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know, I don't know why, because he was an absolute megastar. I think he's been married to two supermodels. We don't get people quite on that level in the press bar, but Mads Mikkelsen's probably one of the, yeah. the most George, famous George and ones I watched there. England versus Sweden in the World Cup with Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, At our feet. It was yeah, on the George, floor. George and I were sat on the sofa <laughs> because and people, some people will have heard the story before, but basically Wimbledon, whenever because it often clashes with a major football tournament, they always refuse to show it anywhere in the grounds because I know this is our tennis tournament and you'd be damned. And basically, the TV in the press bar is the only place where you can actually go and watch the football. And so yeah, it was England Sweden. So I think that would make it 2018. Is that right? And we actually mm. won on penalties. Jordan Pickford made a save or two. Um, did Eric Dyer hit one into the roof of the net? Like the best penalty I've ever seen. That might have been that one. I can't remember. But yeah, Mads Mikkelsen just came in and we're like, George, I think you and I are actually filing because there was still tennis going on. So we had laptops on our knees and we were sat on the sofa in front of the only telly within three miles showing the football. And he was like, oh, yeah, can I sit down here? And we were like, yeah, sure. I was like, nudge, because I'm bad at names as well. And I was like, George, that's the guy from... Casino Royale with the bleeding eye. Do you know? And uh, I think of him as Hannibal Lecter. From yeah, the TV I think series. most other people recognised him as Hannibal. I think. But... He, he was also in uh, the new Indiana Jones film, which I right, okay. weirdly went to watch last week. Mm. Uh, since we've had Cowan's slushy review, George, your film review? Uh, it was okay. It was a bit weird, but <laughs> it was quite long. But it was fine. It was entertaining. It, okay, it is what it is, isn't it? Weird. Quite long. Fine. <laughs> The Guardian calls you kinda, for you, George. You kind of know what you're going to get with it, don't you? It's kind of right, a bit okay. entertaining, bit of a bit of a laugh. But I mean, that's the key with know. these big franchises, isn't it? Like you just don't. It's it's like it's like going to Novak Djokovic match. Like you sort of want him to get a bit angry at his box. Like you want him to fall over a bit, and like you want to get all the hits. But in the end, he wins. Um, that's that's what you basically want from an Ever Djokovic match, apparently. Uh, anyway, interesting. A hell of a diversion. Uh, most famous person in the press bar this year, I, I hear you ask. Tom Hiddleston, regularly. Uh, Tom Hiddleston appears to have spent the entire fortnight at Wimbledon and not really with anyone. Like, was quite often just sort of wandering around on his own, I think looking for someone to have a beer with. Um, I, I was not on his wannabe beer list, but um, I'm sure lots of Why did they go in the press box? The press bar is like, I think it's just quite a quiet bit. And I don't really know if you're a Royal Box guest. I don't really know what your sort of, what your options are in terms of a bar. I've never been in that. But presumably there is a bar there, but it's quite stuffy. And like the press bar is super relaxed. It's got a nice view of Court 14, like overlooks there. It's a nice place to just chill out. But like people don't tend to come up and bother you. It's, there are no punters in there. It's an accredited bar. So... I get it. Like, I, do, you remember, do you remember January Jones ended up there one year? Um, do you mean Don January Draper's Jones? wife. Uh, is that is that who that is? The the well, Bond in Mad Men. Yeah, in, in, she's in Mad Men. Is she? Okay. I've just started rewatching Mad Men. 
All right. That's an excellent show. Well, I look forward to your review next week, George. Okay, bit weird. Better quite, than Indiana Jones. Right, okay. Fine. Great soundtrack as well. It's, it's a great show, Madman. Highly okay. underrated. Um, I'm just going to put one more best moment out there. I, too, I was a bit more specific than you, George, and I went the uh, break point that Arkraz converted at 1-0 in the fifth set when Djokovic subsequently smashed his racket into the net post. That was um, it was, And it was like an amazing point as well, because Djokovic fell over midpoint and then got dominant in the point again and still lost it. It was all a bit mad. Um, but also, I feel like Svitolina was just maybe beating Shontek. Just, she said it was the second best moment of her life after giving birth to Sky, which I imagine Gail Monfils at home being like, I married you. Is that not top two? <laughs> Um, but yeah, and just the whole Svitolina run, not just because of what she did, but also because like, and not because of just because of Ukraine and because of having come back from childbirth, but like she she is a married to one of the biggest chokers in tennis, and B <laughs> was previously one of the biggest chokers in tennis, and all right, yeah, probably arguably choked the semi, but she really didn't choke before then, and like it. It just looks like a whole new Alina Svitolina, and I think that's really cool. I've got a couple of moments that I'm not sure whether I'd put them in the best or worst category, but like <laughs> the Davidovich fucking underarm serve was mental. Uh, was that I can't eight all in the fifth set tiebreak? <laughs> yeah, that was just like balmy. Um, so that was very no- nice. notable think, moment. Notable moment. I think the other one that is probably notable probably would have to go into the bad category, I suppose. But I, you know. I, I quite enjoy the kind of controversy. I mean, the Azarenka leaving court was a pretty crazy moment as well. Like, I've, I've, because I'm less cruel than you, George, chalked that up as my worst moment of the tournament to neatly segue us on. Um, because, and it takes a lot for me to feel sorry for Victoria Azarenka because she has a reputation. She's a very intense person and quite um, un, not uncharitable, but unmoving, I would suggest. And, uh, she dominates WGA player council, I think, and people don't tend to get many words. You've practiced with her, Calvin, haven't you, Azarenka? Uh, yeah, we Luke practiced with her two years ago um, when she was just looking for somebody to practice, and we did it as a favour to somebody who helped us out earlier in the day. Um, very, very intense. She was actually fine with us. She was, she was nice, pleasant, thanks us and everything. But I remember basically there were two girls on practicing before her and she basically just went on mid-rally. When, <laughs> when the time was up, when it was, um, on, the when it was on, on the hour, she yeah, they were still in a rally and she just basically walked on, didn't speak to them at all <laughs> and just started hitting. And from the off as well, just extremely intense in yeah. the practice. Um, but yeah, nevertheless, I thought it was unfair that she got booed off. Um and the my other sort of worst moment, like, and I know neither of you think she's going to win a Grand Slam. Doesn't mean I can't feel some human emotions. Um, I know Calvin, you don't have any, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> Ons Jabeur sobbing on court, like, you know, just uh, uh, she's so nice. It's hard, and she's so interesting, and she's such a role model, such a big part. You know, I was at the Open Golf this week, and the RNA patted themselves on the back a lot when they unveiled their African Amateur Championship, uh, which is going to have a couple of places into qualifying for the Open, and I think maybe one in direct into the Open as well. And, you know, it's an Af- African Amateur Championship. And I was like, great, this sounds like a really good idea. And they're holding it in South Africa. And I was like, well, 
what like how are you growing golf there like south africa already has some pretty big golf tournaments on the dp world tour like how is this like why are you not doing this in like kenya or uganda or ghana or you know somewhere where you're actually growing the game where you're actually going to get people who don't otherwise end up in professional golf playing and i think that's what ons represents to tennis is okay she's from north africa which is a bit different but she she represents like two massive groups that are hugely underrepresented in tennis which is arab players and african players there are very few of either um and that's why i that was a really low moment for me just watching her sort of go this is the third time and also because like she did choke it like like frankly like she played awfully because i think the pressure got to her and i don't want people to go through that i think that's one of the things that um that that i thought was the worst was that we've always seen you know, we said we don't think she's going to win a slam but i think that's because we, we all thought that she'd come across even if she could get a run she'd come across someone like sabalenka or um, osaka when she's playing or mm. you know, previously barty or rabakina or sabalenka we don't we, we don't think they was fontek obviously we didn't think she could beat them but this one was like you know when you get to the final and you've got um a name escapes me marketer von Vondrasova. i was gonna say it's von Reva. i don't know why but <laughs> Um, when you got Vondra Sova and you've not got over the line there, you think, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Your worst moment, George? Uh, yeah, it's it's final based. I think you've covered it, but I'm actually just going to go with Vondra Sova winning the title. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's just a terrible moment for women's tennis, like a new low, <laughs> in my opinion, which is really mean, but like, it is just rubbish. Like, she's not a Grand Slam winning player in my mm. opinion like she's obviously done it in fair play but like that's a really poor result for the women's game mm. i just uh calvin you got me thinking when you sort of just pointed it out more that she had lost not necessarily to the best players in grand slam finals i'm thinking about the jan novotna for example who lost her first three grand slam finals and then won her fourth she she lost to sellers Graf and Hingis, all in three sets, by the way. And then when she finally played, does anyone know who Jan Novotna beat in the 1998 Wimbledon final? Oh, yeah, wasn't it? it Natalie Tuziet, yeah. uh, who I have never heard of before or <laughs> since, if I'm quite honest. I mean, Tuziet was a, you know, she was a top 20 player, yeah, a, reg okay. a regular in the top 24 yeah. a few years, but never, never challenging, never knocking on the doors of. Mm of finals that's for and, sure and similarly kim Kleister's lost her first four but she lost to capriati enna 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 and then finally beat mary pierce who was no mug but probably a bit later it's, it's funny because actually on that i know a a friend of mine who he does a bit of coaching but it's not his main job and he, he just loves tennis um but he has he has a bit of a sort of misguided idea of where things are and he'll send me like messages and questions that are so far off what what they should be like he sent me a message last week going is jabor better than peak henan <laughs> <laughs> and i was like peak henan won like seven slams <laughs> like jabor hasn't won any <laughs> and he'll send me stuff like you know like like again like maybe a couple of months ago he sent me a message going is alcaraz already better than any of the top the big four and i <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, like, it's already hard to compare people, like, through eras. Like, probably if Jabur played Hannah, because tennis moves on, 
it would be I, oh, I don't know I don't know but yeah that is a, that is a weird and difficult question to answer I, I'm sorry for jumping categories but there was one more really good moment I wanted to throw back into the mix was uh, Liam Brody beating Casper Ruud that was a oh, really yeah. nice moment as yeah well. absolutely actually uh, and a clip came up on my TikTok yesterday of his on-court interview when he said my mum was really nervous this morning I said mum I've already won 80 grand you can chill out a bit and like it you know, it's actually like sometimes I've seen Brody do that in press conferences and stuff and be very funny. And, you know, I mean, obviously Calvin's known him for a long time. And, and he is, like, he's a funny guy, he's an intelligent guy, he speaks his mind. But it's a bit more to do it in the on court because it's quite a pressurized situation in front of 20,000 people to try and be funny or be relaxed or just say what you're thinking. And I, oh God, I, I always think I really wish Brody just won more tennis matches because, like, he's, <laughs> he's such a good guy. And I think. You know, just about everyone likes him one way or another, and he he's very likable and he's good looking and he's British and Calvin knows him. So you know, overall, Broads, if you're listening, keep winning, mate. Just do it. He's in Newport this week. He's in the main draw, I think. So hopefully, pick up some wins there. That was last week. That was last week. I'm really on the ball. Second round, so he won a round and then lost to (sighs) I think Jordan Thompson. Win more tennis matches. Simple, honestly. Um. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, that, that is our kind of Wimbledon wrap up, I guess. Um, if you've got if you've got different ideas or thoughts for best moments, worst moments, biggest surprise, biggest disappointment, let us know at Unfiltered Tennis on Twitter, or you can email us tennisunfiltered at gmail if you want to get in touch by email, which is uh, always a popular option, as I know, given that the uh, the email inbox is directly linked to my phone which means that every now and again it gets very buzzy indeed. Usually when I've said something that I regard to be quite uncontroversial, but other people seem to think it is. Uh, right, moving on. I'm going to start with a question as we do a quick news wrap because we've done a lot on Wimbledon there. Uh, it's from a regular correspondent, Guy Adams. It says, quick question. Um, there are quite a few WTA and ATP tournaments happening this week. Three of each, I think, re- referring to the week that's just gone. Uh, but when I cast around for Brits to follow, it seems none of the top 10 UK women and only three of our top 10 men seem to be entered in any. Since we had bugger all representation in week two of Wimbledon, these players have already now had seven days off. So does their failure to hit the circuit and compete this week when similarly ranked players from other countries very much are playing speak to an inherent laziness and lack of graft among leading British players? And would they, Calvin, be more likely to grind a bit harder on the circuit if they hadn't just been bunged 50k for getting wild cards at our home slam? Um, <laughs> Tell us what you really think, guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the wild card thing, I, I, I don't have an issue with. Um, you know, I think some you know players. Contrary to actual a belief of a lot of people, the LTA don't actually fund many players, mm. and we have to. You know that that's a different way of doing it. And I think everybody who I think all of the wild cards. I can't remember the women so much, but I think all of the men's wild cards. They all justified their wild cards by performing well at the tournament or losing to players who you certainly wouldn't expect them to beat. Um, like Broads made third round. Uh, fourth round? Bro's my fourth round, didn't he? Uh, yeah, third or fourth round. Great. I mean, given that he I don't even know where he is. Yeah, yeah, Bro made Bruder's third round. Second. Yeah, um, yeah, sorry, third round. Choinsky won a round. Um, George Lofagan lost to Holger Rune, which there's no shame in. Um, you know, I, th- I think so. So in terms of that, I, I don't have an issue with the wild cards, and I don't think anybody would be more inclined to go out. However, 
uh, to, to go out and play more tournaments. However, I do agree. I, I don't really get why people are taking breaks at this stage. Um, although you would say, I'm not sure how many... I don't know because I've not looked at the list. I don't know how many of those players would have got in the tournaments. It's not just that you just choose and go and play an, an ATP or a 250. Um, I but think you, could Rose... play, you could play somewhere. Yeah, but I think a lot of players have been playing somewhere. Like, I know Ryan Penniston played this week. Um, Jack Draper is injured or he's coming back from injury. He's uh, He's been training uh, every day because I've seen him every training every day. Hitting or just, or just fitness work? No, he's hitting. Yeah, he's, full, oh, he's hitting full, full hitting. Murray's training every day this week, um, and I think he's heading out to play tournaments now. Jack's a couple of weeks off being able to play. I don't know what Cam Norrie's doing. Um, I don't think who else we've got after that. Um, yeah, Dan I'm just Evans is playing. Uh, Dan Evans is playing this week, uh, coming. But wasn't playing last week or the week before. No, but I mean. The... I mean, the surface is also an issue. Like, so now for Evo, Evo would think, well, he doesn't want to do another week on grass. There's, you know, the grass season's finished. He's, he's at his age, uh, you know, his, his stage in his career, he's focusing on trying to get the big points from the slams. So he's mm. not going to do another week on grass. And equally, he's hardly going to go and do something on clay for a week, is he? Before yeah. a, um, and the hardcore season starts right now. So what most people are thinking is rather than do another week on grass, I'll go to clay. They're going to have a week on the hard training and then get and play a hardcore tournament. I'm certain that if there was a hardcore tournament last week that we'd have seen more players playing. Um, But equally, I I take it on board that that I don't think the the British players, particularly the female players, I don't think they play enough. I think they have too much training or... I mean, they've got this one now, what a lot of players do on their social media, just putting on the, the battery emoji and saying recharge week. <laughs> like, for what? Yeah, I, I was going to say kind of similar. I, th- I think this is the one week of the year I, I give players a, a free pass for not playing. I just think it's it's quite a stupid week in terms of you're about to go into the hardcore swing. It's a kind of clay top-up week or mm. a random grass tournament in America, which... I think it's yeah. a nonsense. There's week, a point interesting points, but it's silly. Like, it's it, a silly week. They'd almost be better off making it like a mandatory holiday week or something, like just you know a, a bit of a mid-season break and like guarantee players a bit of time off, because yeah, and, and it kind of brings me neatly on because one of the tournaments going on this week is the Hopman Cup uh, in France. Now people will remember the Hopman Cup in Perth uh, being a mixed sort of round robin country-based tournament. It's still a country-based tournament. It's still mixed. There is. Um, still around Robin Element, uh, but it has moved surface. It's now an outdoor clay uh, in Nice in France. And like I said, it was great because they advertised well in advance uh, the idea that Carlos Alcaraz would be playing. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, Spain have not made the finals, uh, despite the fact they have the best player in the world, uh, and quite frankly, by a distance. Uh, David, uh, David Goffin took Carlos Alcaraz all the way, by the way, uh, in, in Carlos Alcaraz's new style, which is playing badly for his country after winning a Grand Slam. Uh, he won 4-6, 6-4, 10-8 in a match tie-break, uh, but then lost the mixed doubles 3-1, and one, although playing with Rebecca Masarova against David Goffin and Elise Mertens, I think that's slightly forgivable. Um, and he did do his job against Borna Chorich in the singles against Croatia as well before losing a very close doubles match. I mean, I don't know who wants to come in on this, but someone pointed out to me, I think it was Liam actually, who's a regular listener and correspondent, um, that, you know, t- a week after 
or less than a week after winning Wimbledon on grass, ahead of a hard court season, Carlos Alcaraz is down playing matches on clay. I mean, it's not clever, is it? Like, for a guy who's already had multiple injuries this year, surely this is a mistake. Um, I was quite surprised he was involved, yeah. I imagine he was played handsomely, wasn't he? Yeah, but, I mean, there's got to be some He's not going to come, to be fair, I I doubt we'll see him on the hard until Montreal. Is it Montreal or Toronto? It's Toronto this year, I think. Toronto, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I doubt we'll see him on the hard before Toronto, so... I don't think the surface change is as massive, and I imagine he was he was paid very handsomely. And I imagine because he played Wimbledon final, I think it was probably a very difficult thing to get out of. Yeah, I suppose so. I just it doesn't fill me with confidence in the people looking after him. That you know, this was obviously booked in a while ago, but he's world number one. You've got to expect him to go deep at Wimbledon. I'm sure. I don't know, maybe, I mean, I don't know how capable he is of saying no. I mean, his coach at the Wimbledon final had, I think, four or five different brandings on his baseball cap, <laughs> which I think that speaks quite a few volumes yeah. as to uh, where where a lot of the focus is there. And, it, it, I mean, that was as bad as I've seen. It was like they just specifically kept on sticking extra branding on his coach's <laughs> baseball cap knowing the camera would go there not re- related to any none of them related to anything else either so yeah I, I think we've been doing this tournament to be honest the, <clears throat> the other mental thing from this week is how well the Swiss team did like You've got two players outside the top 150 who've gone and reached the final. And like the bloke has like beat Holger Rune, Gasquet, uh, Leandro, Reedy. Like, that's quite a random set of results. I mean, obviously it's not the most consequential tournament, but like, a bit odd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've heard about Leandro Reedy. I heard Demian Kust, who is a challenger tour expert, has been talking about Reedy a bit. Um, so, I don't know. I think the final is ongoing, isn't it, as we speak? Switzerland versus Croatia. Uh, in fact, I can tell you, Borna Cioric has taken the first set against Leandro Reedy, and Croatia, oh. Croatia are set away from victory. Um, so, in the prestigious Hopman Cup. I do now like that the Hopman Cup, I believe, is named after a famous Australian Davis Cup captain, who now has a tournament not played in Australia named after him. Presumably, no one in the south of France knows who he is. Calvin. <laughs> Um, I find I mean, one of the reasons I find this tournament so weird is that it used to fit nicely in that it was kind of an exhibition event of the first week of the year, the first week of the tennis calendar, and like you said, it was played in Australia. Played it used to be played in Perth. Um, but and you know you got basically pretty much the best players from the countries played there. Now I don't really know what it represents because it's now just some players from those countries will play. And it's not the best players, so it's not like you can go, well, they're the best tennis nation now because of that. It's just, it's kind of turned into, I was talking with somebody like, I don't know, any of our British listeners will know that um, County Cups, County Week starts tomorrow, which is the inter-county tournament throughout the country. And there's there's nine divisions, I think, and the, the, the Division 1 is played at Eastbourne. And it used to be a huge event, like up until maybe... 10 12 years ago basically everyone played it andy murray has played it 
um, when he was ranked inside the top 20 in the world, I think. Mm. His brother regularly has played it. Uh, Dan Evans has played it. So everyone used to it. It's kind of like, it feels like it's had its time now and now not even any of the the players from the counties really play it. So now you've got this situation where it's not, it used to be like, say, whichever county won it, you could put, you could say, right, they're the best county at tennis in the country. Whereas now, basically, it's just some players from the counties playing. It doesn't really represent anything anymore. It's kind of had its time, and I kind of feel that's where the Holman Cup's at. George, any any defence? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at the rankings on the women's side, you have highest-ranked players, 22. I mean, I think of the teams, you could make the case that Croatia got their strongest team possible out. Belgium probably did. Denmark. But they're not like... I don't know, Masarova for Spain. It's a bit of a kind of yeah, but it's also like they're not awful. also not the six strongest tennis nations. Like you know, Serbia, yeah, yeah, exactly. Serbia aren't in there, for example, or Australia. You know, um, yeah, yeah. It's Russia. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, Switzerland's quite a mad one to be having in, isn't it? Really, like, mm. yeah. I'm even though they've obviously reached the final, like, fair play, but like, you know, Riedel and Naif. I mean, there's it's hardly going to be a getting bums on seats is it really do we um do we know slightly off topic speaking about spain that do we, is there any date for uh, Muguruza coming back uh what a great question uh i haven't even thought about garbinia Muguruza for some time um what what where did that come from um i mean just when you talk i was just wondering who spain would have in the mm. women's uh you know if they went full strength yeah, but well, is not fit either. Yeah, oh, she, yeah, 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 she pulled out a mixed, famously. Um, yeah, well, Muguruza, she said she she had like an injury, and then I'm just kind of remembering and refreshing, and then she said she would miss the clay and the grass because she was kind of just sort of enjoying the time out. And to be fair, Muguruza, I think, had a basically wow. a, a bit of a breakdown last year, um, which I think, you know. If she wants to take more time off, I'm going to struggle to criticise her. But yeah, that's a good point. Um, be interested to see. I'm not sure. Um, trying to find WTA entry lists these days is virtually impossible. Um, so it's not, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see her again this year, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, right. Uh, I've got one piece of any other business, George, before you uh, come in with all of yours. Um, oh, well, first of all, I should plug the fact that I was on BBC Radio 5 Live last week uh, in a debate with Marcus Buckland, which I hope some of you have listened to. I'll put a link to the iPlayer in uh, in the show notes, so if you're in the UK, you can listen back to it. Uh, we were debating, this house believes that no matter how many more tournaments Novak Djokovic wins, Roger Federer will always be the GOAT. Uh, you'll be Some people will be surprised to hear I was defending Novak Djokovic on this occasion, and uh, the jury of one made me the winner. So, um, Nole fam, take that, uh, is all I can say. Uh, the other piece of any other business I have, and I don't, I haven't, because I'm not working for the next couple of weeks, I haven't dug into this story, um, although I'm not necessarily sure how far I could get with it, but Vera Zvonareva uh, was due to play a WTA event in Poland this week, uh, and she was denied entry uh, by the border guard. She flew to Warsaw from Serbia um, with a visa issued uh, in France 
She tried to get into our country on a flight from Belgrade to Warsaw. Uh, this is a quote from the border guard in Poland. Uh, after arriving from Serbia, the tennis player stayed in the transit zone of Chopin Airport in Warsaw, and today, after 12pm, flew to Podgorica, which is in Montenegro, as far as I know. Uh, the Russian woman was on the list of persons whose stay is undesirable in the territory of the Republic of Poland, was not admitted by the border guards for reasons of state security and protection of public safety. Poland consistently opposes the regimes of Putin and Lukashenko, refusing to allow people who support the actions of Russia and Belarus to enter our country. Now, I don't know if anyone has any more info on this. The WTA are investigating, presumably because someone has probably pointed out, well, you did fine the All England for not letting uh, Russians into their tournament. Uh, this feels more like it's a governmental decision. Well, it clearly is a governmental decision, but it's not great news for the Russians and Belarusians on tour, I would imagine, George. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. Uh, th that wasn't the other piece of news I thought you were going to be bringing up. Not to shift away from <laughs> the uh, question. I thought you were going to talk about Zhang Shui. That was... I thought that was the big story this week. You're right. Oh, I yeah. had completely forgotten about it. George, do you want to just sort of, for people who've not seen the video, uh, highlight what, what actually happened? Uh, so there was a... I mean, I, I didn't watch the whole match, so I've, it's always a bit of a case of trying to... I mean, let's face it, George, I, I think flips. very few people very few. did watch that whole match. <laughs> um, but... It basically like there was a line call that the umpire said was out um, and the mark did look to be in um, and then there's a separate line call where Toth who was playing Zhang Shui um, rubbed the mark out with her foot that wasn't the separate was one was it same was one, it the same it? one I don't know because I thought they were different points I don't know. It's no. quite hard to piece together because it looked like the umpire came down, looked at it. So I don't know why Zhang would be then that bothered if she. Because like, she then asked, out. she asked for the the supervisor, supervisor. to come oh, okay. on and check them. Now I don't know. I don't think a supervisor can actually overrule the umpire. So I don't know mm. why she wanted her to come or, or the the supervisor to come on. But what I will say was it it was an absolute terrible call. Like yeah, it was a bad sure. call, but you. You can forgive the uh, the line judge for making it. You know that kind of thing happens. But for the umpire to come down and look at it now, I, I was at the NTC um, the day after it happened when the the video went viral, and I must have been heard ten or twelve players showing each other it, and every single one has gone. That's in. That's one hundred percent in. Mm. So how? And 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 it's not an isolated incident. This there's been a few incidents with umpires seeing things like that. I think there was one with Murray against Fognini earlier in the year, a similar one. And it's just quite clear that it's they've just made an absolute terrible call. And yeah. I, I can't understand how they can look at it. Look, anybody can make it if it happens in a split second. Anybody can make it, but to come and check the mark and then get it so wrong. Is is baffling to me. Yeah, it was shocking. And obviously, then it it spiraled into quite big instances. I mean, Zhang's kind of spoken about her kind of mental health problems recently. I think her grandparents passed away or something. Right. Um, that's kind of led her to. She has had an reflective. awful run of results. Did she get double yeah. bageled the week in Eastbourne? I seem to remember. Yeah. yeah. Um. So she was obviously visibly quite upset. The crowd got quite involved. Toff was kind of 
mimicking and mocking her and, and, and Zhang ended up kind of retiring after what people were saying was a panic attack. WTA were looking into kind of alleged racism. I, I didn't see it in any of the clips, but there must have been something for them to put out a statement um, to say they were looking at it. Toth was pretty awful. I mean, like, you know, we sometimes say we kind of quite like the... Um, the, the bad players in tennis they give us something to write about but Tom, to be like physically like shaking your hands and pumping and cheering when your opponent's just retired in kind of tears didn't really feel like an appropriate <laughs> response to be honest it wasn't very heartfelt on her side I, it was her first tour win I think yeah but, I, I'm gonna yeah. offer a little bit of defense on Amarissa Toth's behalf because it was her first WTA win, and I imagine there was a lot of things going through her head at that moment. She did issue an apology. She said, I don't, did not think that my first ever WTA main draw success in my career caused such a storm. I'm extremely sorry. I respect Zhang Shui as a person, uh, as much as an athlete. It was never my intention to disrespect or upset or hurt anybody, let alone Zhang Shui. Uh, I do realise I shouldn't have celebrated the way I celebrated after the match. I'm sorry for that but I got caught up in my emotions by the heat of the match I got caught up in the moment I focused on the tennis I didn't want to win like that um, I hope that in the future I have the opportunity to sit down and talk with Zhang Shui and tell her how badly I feel that our match ended this way um, there's then a load of quotes in because I'm reading this off the Mail Online where they've got the Mail Online's body language expert which <laughs> apparently is a full time job uh, to analyse the video and say it was unconvincing and cold. <laughs> it's just like Jesus Christ. I mean, yeah, I have no thoughts. Um, clearly, Calvin, it's caused quite a stir in the locker room, and uh, people presumably, <laughs> Amaris Atos, going to have a little bit of a reputation for the next year or so. I mean, yeah, I don't. You know, it's, it's no secret that there's not many great friendships on the women's tour, anyway. So. Mm. I'm not, not sure that'll make much difference. It's not like the. Well, I don't think like this is, and this is not. I don't think this is controversial for me to say that. I don't think that would happen in the men's game. I think it would. The men's tend to be more friendly with each other. It seems to be more camaraderie, doesn't there? Yeah, I think more camaraderie, but also they speak even if you don't, and and they'll they'll openly speak. I think even if they don't. Um, even if they don't get on, there's basically a code of things that you wouldn't do. Mm. Um, and it's basically that, that I just don't think that would happen in the men's game. Mm. Um, and, you know, it did happen in the women's game. Well, it's, uh, as I say, it's caused quite a stink in a week when usually tennis would be having a sort of break from the public eye and then all of a sudden it's. Uh thrust back in it and judy james the body body language analyst for mail online gets a bit more work so good for her what the one thing i, I didn't get on that was that i don't and and again you know it may be because that zhang is has had some issues uh recently but wasn't that big a point i don't get why you'd have committed yeah. such like such anger and frustration at it it wasn't like if that would have happened at I mean, and I'd watched it three or four times until I realised that the score was something like 6-4 or 1-all of 15 mm. or something. Um, but I don't think it was... If, say, it would have happened at 5-all in a breaker, you could see yourself just going nuts about it. Whereas when it's the state that it happened there, you'd think you'd, you know, you'd, you'd be pissed off for a couple of minutes and then just get on with it. Mm -hmm. George, did you I have mean, another who... point? 
I, I was just saying, I mean, who, who would have thought that we'd be talking about Zhang Shui versus Toth this week? I mean, that, well, that's why I wasn't joking when I really, said I don't think it was a random match. The full, the full length. I really don't think they have. Um, right, I think that's all we've got time for this week. I'm sorry we've talked about Wimbledon so much, but I, I did feel we should take a bit of time to take a bit more overhead view, and, and there hasn't been loads of tennis uh, this week, and we're recording on Sunday night, so realistically some of these tournaments haven't finished yet. I'm just seeing if there are any ch- notable champions that I would be able to um, point out. Andre Rublev uh, won Gestard. won, didn't he? Oh, Pedro Kashin won in Gestard uh, and snogged his dog on court. Yeah, celebrate uh, with his dog. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, um, it was quite OTT, actually. Oh, Stan Varinka makes a, makes, makes a big change for Pedro Cachin just entering double slams and then tanking completely uh, every time he does so, which I think I've seen three times, and he did one against uh, Henry and Julian in Australia this year. Just basically, he couldn't make it more obvious that he's just claiming his $6,000 or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, just have to get that off my chest there. Good. Well done. All right. Uh, Right. Well, we will be back next week for more Calvin getting things off his chest, more film reviews and more reviews of the latest (laughs) confectionery that money can buy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Podcast Network.